0: Despite the widespread outrage at the Peterloo Massacre and the outpouring of sympathy for its victims, by the end of 1819, Lord Sidmouth and his allies had all but suppressed the movement for reform. All of the leading reformers were in prison or awaiting trial. The aborted inquest on the death of John Lees suggested that there would be no justice from the courts, and in December 1819, the notorious Six Acts passed into law. These acts prohibited drilling, the holding of unauthorised public meetings of more than fifty people, and the playing of music and display of banners at meetings. They authorised house searches and arrest of persons found in possession of weapons, removed obstacles preventing swift administration of the law, strengthened measures against blasphemy and seditious libel, and imposed stamp duty and other regulations on the press. There remained only the trial of the so-called conspirators who had been transported to Lancaster Castle after the hearings at Manchester. Samuel Bamford, a vociferous defendant at the trial, begins the story with his arrest early in the morning of the 26th of August. About two o'clock on the morning of Thursday, the 26th of August, that is, on the 10th morning after the fatal meeting, I was awoke by footsteps in the street opposite my residence. Presently they increased in number, and came nearer, and from the manner in which they collected and approached the place, I was convinced a sore trial was at hand for the little woman who lay asleep on my arm, and I felt more concern on her account than on my own. Bang, bang, came the blows on the door. Hello, who's making that dinner this time of night? My wife was crying. "'and all in a tremor, "'but I cheered her and told her to be quick, "'and I would keep them in talk "'whilst I put on a few things of my own. "'Open the door,' said a voice authoritatively. "'Open the door,' imitating the voice. "'And who are I too "'that I should open my door to thee. "'Thou art some drunken owl or other, "'or else thou would not come here that way. "'Open the door or I'll break it,' "'said the same person. "'Break it, Wilter,' and who art thou that talks a-breaking into folks' houses that dideth neat? Thou'd better not break it, unless thou's an iron pot on the head. There was another bang, and a stout push at the door, but they might as well have shoved against the rock of Gibraltar. The door had been firmly propped to prevent a too sudden surprise. "'Will you open the door, man?' said another voice. "'Well, but who are ye and what dun you want? For there's more than one in here.' "'We are constables, and we want you,' was the reply. "'Oh, that's a different thing quite. "'If you are constables, you shan come in by all means. "'Why didn't you tell me so at first? "'By this time, both my wife and myself were decently attired, "'and advancing to the door, I took away the prop and shot the bar, "'and bid them come in, and not soil the silk-work in the looms. "'A crowd of men entered.' It was quite dark, but I learned from the sounds of gunstocks on the floor that we had soldiers. My wife was terrified and clung to me. I told her to get a light, and she went towards the door for that purpose, but shrunk back on running against a musket as she groped away. The constables also repulsed her. They said she must not go out. They would get a light themselves. And in a short time, Joseph Platt, one of my former conductors to London, "'appeared with a candle. "'I now perceive that my visitors were a strong posse of police, "'some soldiers of the 32nd Regiment, "'Mr. Nadine, the Deputy Constable of Manchester, "'and several officers of infantry and hussars. "'These seemed interested by the proceedings, "'and were attentive observers of what took place. "'The military force consisted of a company of foot, "'and, as I afterwards learned, a troop of hussars.' The officers were no doubt surprised that such a parade should have been deemed requisite for the apprehension of a poor weaver in his cellar. "'Well, Mr. Nadine,' I said, laying aside my vernacular and speaking common English, "'and what may be your pleasure with me now?' He informed me, in his usual dogged way, striving to be civil, that he had a warrant against me for high treason. I said that if that was the case, I was ready to accompany him, but he would never convict me. "'and if he did, my blood would kill him.' "'He and his assistants then commenced searching the place, "'for arms, as I thought, on which I ridiculed their simplicity, "'saying, "'And do you think I should keep my depot here?' "'One of the men laid hold of a sugar-cane, and asked what that was. "'I said you might surely see it was a pike-shaft, "'but the head I had removed to another place. "'I'd been expecting them,' I said, "'seven or eight days,' and of course had made the place as clear as I could for their reception. The drawers were rummaged, my oaken box was explored, a shawl was spread out on the floor, and all my books and papers were bundled into it. There was not, however, anything of consequence. Some poems in manuscript had been deposited elsewhere. I took up some of my printed poems, The Weaver Boy, and would have presented a copy to each of the officers, but Mr. Nadine would not permit me. He took the books and threw them on the heap, and I thought the officers seemed displeased. He then bade one of his men to handcuff me. Nay, Mr. Nadine, I said, can this be necessary? I give you my word of honour not to attempt an escape. With a profound oath he bade the man do his duty, and I was chained. The order was then given to move. My wife burst into tears. I tried to console her, said I should soon be with her again, and bestowing a kiss for my dear child when she came in the morning, I ascended into the street and shouted, "'Hunt and liberty! Hunt and liberty!' responded my brave little helpmate, whose spirit was now roused. One of the policemen, with a pistol in his hand, swearing a deep oath, said he would blow out her brains if she shouted again. "'Blow away!' was the reply. "'Hunt and liberty! Hunt forever!' Nothing further was said. The soldier's shouldered arms, and the word March being given, the prisoner and his escort tramped down the street. "'I thought you very foolish,' said a young hussar officer, in a friendly tone at my left elbow. "'Why so?' I asked. But before he could reply he was interrupted, and I had not an opportunity for speaking to him again. I supposed he meant something about the books. "'Well, but how is this?' I said to Mr. Nadine, You know I am not in the habit of walking on these excursions. I must have a coach. And scarcely had we gone many yards, ere we came to a coach with the door open, the steps down, and a file of hussars on each side of the road. I stepped into the vehicle, followed by Nadine, one of his men, and a boy. The door was closed, and we drove off, accompanied by the trample of horses and the clatter of arms. The coach stopped at Sam Ogden's at Harper Hay. Dean got out and left me, the man and the boy, guarded by the hussars. After sitting some time, the foot soldiers came up. A person or two dressed as gentlemen also appeared. One of them said, "'Where is the villain?' The door was opened and I was asked to step out. I did so, and in passing forward to the lobby, a blow or severe push in my neck nearly flung me on my face. I turned and saw Mr. Thomas Andrew of Harperhay in an attitude of menace. I shall not repeat the terms in which I addressed him, but I told him that no man, much less a gentleman, would descend to outrage a person in chains, that he had disgraced himself, and that it was well for him, a circumstance he no doubt had calculated on, that my hands were confined. The lobby was filled with soldiers and police, and someone said, "'No one should touch the prisoner,' Probably it was one of the military who knew not that this person was brother to the head constable of Manchester I was next shown into the kitchen and took my seat in an old arm-chair in the farther corner near the fireplace-on each side of me was seated a policeman with a pistol in his hand-the infantry piled arms in two or three stacks and the hussars came in in turn whilst others remained on guard-half a dozen tables were quickly surrounded, and as soon plentifully supplied with oat cake cheese and ale, to which the men set with right good will. I told them to make play and spare nothing, and if no one else would pay the shot I would. They laughed, said I was a hearty fellow, and they wished they might take such a one every night. Of course I and my two policemen replenished to our liking, but our ale was eightpenny, and of a prime tap. I was first taken to the police office in King Street, and from thence to the prison in Salford. The turnkey appeared, in temper crusty and half-awake. The door opened and banged to behind me, and the next moment I was ushered into one of the lock-ups. A close warm air, tainted with an abominable odour, was the first thing that saluted my senses on entering this wretched place. It was a small cell, perhaps four or five yards in length, by two or three in width, and probably as lofty as it was long-opposite the door was an aperture to let in a stinted quantity of air-on two sides of the room were two benches fastened to the wall-in the centre was a stove with a fire in-and at a corner on the right was a convenience from which emanated the disagreeableness first mentioned-two or three fellows were stretched on the benches-one was doubled up in a corner, and one lay coiled up like a dog on the floor before the stove. One of them opened it, flung in some slack and stirred it, and a light flashed out that showed every corner of that noisome crib and the persons I was now associated with. Towards noon we were called out of this odious place and taken into the court above for examination, or rather, recognition, before the magistrates. My companions were placed in the box commonly allotted to the jury, whilst I was seated at a small desk near the dock, generally occupied by the Governor or an assistant. The magistrate on this occasion was Mr. Norris. The felony cases were first disposed of, and it went quite hard against some of my late fellows. One man was afterwards committed for trial for drilling, and several were required to find bail or sureties for assaults and other minor offences. My case, Mr. Norris said, was a most serious one. The charge against me was nothing less than that of high treason. The evidence would not be gone into at present, and I should be brought up for a future examination. I asked, might I be allowed to put a question or two? Certainly. I wished to know who was my accuser, and on what information I had been deprived of my liberty. Mr. Norris said, that would be made known to me in due time. I said, "'Mr. Nadine had seized a number of papers and political tracts at my house, "'and I begged to know who held them, and from whom they would be recoverable. "'Mr. Norris said the constable who seized them would be responsible. "'They might become necessary to the ends of justice.' "'That did not satisfy me,' I replied. "'It was possible that other papers might be introduced amongst them, "'and I wished them to be sealed up and deposited with a party beyond all suspicion.' I was told to be silent. If I uttered any more impertinence I should be committed. I said I understood I was committed. No, I was remanded and would be brought up on a future day for final examination. The turnkey then tipped me on the shoulder and I followed him. The charge of high treason was abandoned. Instead the prisoners were charged with conspiracy. Bail was allowed. Johnson and Morehouse found bail at once and were released. The other prisoners were transferred to Lancaster Castle. Proceeding at a rapid pace, we soon left the dim atmosphere and crowded streets of Manchester and Salford behind. The populous thoroughfares of Pendleton were next traversed, and a pleasant ride of twelve miles brought us to the large town of Bolton, where we changed horses amid a throng of people which the hussars found some difficulty in keeping at a distance but their expressions of sympathy and good-will were not to be restrained, and their loud shouts of "'Hunt forever! "'Never mind em lads! "'Down with the tyrants!' and a general huzzah, with waving of hats and handkerchiefs, and clapping of hands when we drove off, added to the cheerfulness of our party. Soon after leaving Bolton, darkness came on, and we had scarcely cleared the moors of Horwich, when the coachman, who knew not the way, drove upon a piece of new road, and endeavouring to extricate himself, the coach began to heel on one side, and we should have gone over, constables, prisoners and all, had not the pole broken on which the horses were steadied, and we dismounted, and being most carefully looked to by the constables and soldiers, we walked down to the village of Lower Darwin, and were all snugly counted into a public house there. The poor Jehu, whose mistake had led to the misadventure, then got a large dividend of devil's blessings from our conducting constable. At this place, Mr. Hunt refused to partake of any vinous or fermented liquor, and out of compliment to him, most of us did the same. Saxton, however, whose fiery visage told of the indulgence he loved, took brandy and water, and candidly declared, that he would not attempt to carry into effect Mr. Hunt's rule of temperance. He would attend a meeting at any time, he said, or make a speech, or move or second a resolution for parliamentary reform, but a resolution for a personal reform in the matter of a little cordial he neither could nor would entertain. A discussion ensued which caused some laughter, in which Mr. Hunt joined, and having sat about an hour, the poll was repaired, and we drove into Blackburn, where we left the coach, the driver and the hussars, and went on with a fresh vehicle and guards. At Preston we stopped at the head inn, and took supper in a large room, to the lower end of which a number of respectable-looking persons were admitted. These genteel visitors seemed not to have the smallest idea that their presence might be disagreeable to men in our situation, and that a plea of curiosity was likely to seem but an ungracious excuse for coming to view us as they would wild beasts at feeding-time. The streets here, as at every other town where we stopped, were crowded, and we set off amid loud cheers. Morning broke between Garstang and Lancaster, and the first challenge of John Gaunt's Tower, as it stood out before us in the mild sunlight, excited our attention. It looked, indeed, like the stern and lordly keep of an old baron, and a small exercise of imagination was sufficient to place in our mind's eye its powerful chieftain, waiting in helmet, cuirass, and glaive beneath its portcullis. We passed quickly along the streets of the town, the hussars came trotting dusty and choked and weary behind us. It was about five o'clock, few people were stirring, and the clatter of our cavalcade aroused many from their peaceful slumbers. We dismounted at the foot of the castle steep, and walked up, accompanied by our guards, and took our station beneath the arch of the grim old gate, the boldness and strength of its masonry attracting our admiration. A blow from the ponderous knocker made the place resound, and in a few minutes the wicket was opened, and we were prisoners in Lancaster Castle. Our arrival seemed scarcely to have been expected so early as it took place, for it was not until we had waited some time, between the inner and outer gates, that a young man, who we afterwards found was the governor's son, made his appearance without coat and with other indications of a hurried dressing. Having perused the documents presented by Nadine, and cast a hasty but observant glance at his prisoners, he conducted us into the debtor's yard, where we were greeted with a shout and many good wishes, and shaking of hands by some debtors who were abroad. A very brief reconnoitre was sufficient for the settlement of any doubts as to the place being a most excellent one for safe detention. All around were high and frowning barriers of masonry, and we felt as completely shut in from the world, as if we were at the bottom of a great well where neither force nor art nor supplication were of any avail. On our right were high and smooth walls, capped by movable spikes, threatening impalement to any wight whom a desperate good fortune enabled to ascend there. At regular distances were strong prison towers containing sleeping cells. A little more in our front stood the huge gloomy mass, known as John O'Gaunt's Tower, which looked like a pile hewn square from the solid rock. At the top of the yard and on our left were the habitations of the debtors, with their small windows all looking down into the great well, whilst from the casements and crib-looking loopholes, some of the poor fellows stood clapping hands and waving nightcaps, as if they really thought that a welcome to such a place must be as gratifying to any other, and that a welcome was a compliment anywhere. We were conducted from hence to the first criminal ward on our right, the tower of which is, I believe, called the Round Tower. Here we found several prisoners, and amongst them an attorney from Manchester and his clerk, who had each been sentenced to three years' imprisonment, for falsely swearing to a debt against my former fellow prisoner, Joseph Sellers. Their time was nearly out, but the old attorney was apparently hastening fast to another world. He lay in one corner on the floor, doubled up and in dreadful agonies from pains in his bowels and limbs, the latter caused by rheumatism. This place was very inconvenient, cold and comfortless. A continued draught of wind brought the smoke down the chimney, and we were all coughing and nearly blinded. Soon after, we were removed into the next ward but one, towards the roundhouse, and there we were comparatively at home having a much better day-room and yard, and besides those amendments we were all together, without any admixture with other prisoners, and were consequently at liberty to converse freely amongst ourselves. There were a good kettle and pan in the day-room, and good water and a pump in the yard. We sent into the town for other kitchen requisites, as plates, knives, forks and such articles, also for bread and butter, until our prison allowance was given us, tea, coffee, and other grocery matters, and having a fire in the place, we soon contrived to make a good breakfast, and were quite merry over it. At dinner we fared no worse. We sent out for whatever we wanted, ales and liquors excepted. The prison allowance of vegetables and soup was in part used by us, and the remainder we gave to a felon, who was allowed to come in to clear our day-room and cells every morning. The day passed off pretty agreeably, but towards evening Hunt gave way to fits of impatience, because no one appeared to bail him. He in particular inveighed against Johnson for having, as he said, invited him down to Manchester, got him into that trouble, and then abandoned him. Sooner, he said, than he would have done as Johnson had done by him, Sooner than he would have walked home at liberty and left his friend and guest in prison, he would have had his arm torn from his body. Mr. Hunt generally made use of the strongest terms he could at the moment command, and to those of us who had frequently been in his company, exhibitions of violent feeling were by no means new. He had not the candour to reflect that Mr. Johnson could not better serve us than by first securing his own liberty, as a means towards furthering ours, which in this case, I believe he did. Bamford refers here to Joseph Johnson, with whom Hunt had stayed at Smedley Cottage. Shortly after his arrest on the Hustings, Johnson had offered to give up his private correspondence with Hunt to the Home Office. The correspondence was never delivered, and Johnson was sent to Lancaster and subsequently convicted along with Bamford and Hunt. Bamford's comment that Johnson could do more for the cause if he were free is surprising, considering that he had offered to turn King's evidence against the man he had invited to Manchester in exchange for his freedom. The door from the interior opened. A person entered, and speaking to our conductor, we were motioned to go forward. We descended some steps, and passed along a subterranean passage, nearly dark, at the further end of which the light increased and we could hear voices, and a kind of confused hum above. In a few minutes, a man was handed down some steps into the passage by another, who held his arm. The former appeared to be in distress. They passed to the room from whence we had come, and our guide motioning us to advance, we mounted the steps, and found ourselves in an oblong box or compartment, mounted by iron spikes, in a large crowded place lighted by numerous lamps and chandeliers, and with hundreds of eyes gazing upon us. The spectacle was certainly calculated to inspire us with awe and alarm. Our sudden transition from a scene of gloom and wretchedness, to one of light and splendour, produced a momentary confusion of mind, a vacant wonder, and uncertainty as to what all this could mean. One moment, however, and a glance around was sufficient to recall the mind to its duty and then, whilst the ear was listening, the eye was observing, and the memory receiving impressions which have never yet been erased. In the box where we stood were, besides ourselves, several officers of the prison. The deputy governor, the young gentleman who received us at the gate, stood in a small space on one side. Behind us, but separated from our box, was a packed mass of human beings, with javelin-men in their liveries and their glittering weapons. On our right was a large pew or compartment, crowded with well-dressed persons. Before us, and somewhat elevated, sat the judge, a man of venerable years, clothed in a long robe of bright scarlet and ermine, with a flowing white wig, and a countenance of rough blunt mould. A look like that of a surly old lion, at once stern, willful and magnanimous, This was the venerable Baron Wood. On the bench with him were several gentlemen and ladies, probably the sheriff and his friends. All the space on the left was equally crammed, and the galleries on each side were crowded with elegantly attired females, who, I flattered myself, seemed generally to be prepossessed in our favour. On the floor, betwixt us and the judge, was a large table, covered with green cloth, on which lamps were burning, and books, papers, and writing apparatus were confusedly distributed. Around the table were a number of barristers in their costume, some writing, some conversing, and others observing us. Hunt, Morehouse, Johnson, and Knight were in the space near the table on the judge's right. Sir Charles Wolseley, Mr. Chapman, Mr. Harmer, Mr. Denison, Mr. Pearson, and a number of other friends were near them and every other inch of the floor was occupied. A number of reporters for the Metropolitan and County Press were also there, plying their ready pencils, and it is probable that the description of this scene, which some of those gentlemen sketched on the spot, might, if now consulted, display a more correct and striking picture of the group than the present one drawn from memory alone. Mr. Littledale, who on this occasion acted for the Government, requested that the indictment might be read, and it was accordingly read by the clerk of the Arraigns. It stated that the prisoners, being persons of a wicked and turbulent disposition, did on the first day of July, conspire and agree together to excite tumult and disturbance, and that they did, on the sixteenth day of August, unlawfully, maliciously, and seditiously assemble together, and cause others to assemble to the number of sixty thousand, in a formidable and menacing manner, with sticks, clubs, and other offensive weapons, with banners, flags, colours, and placards, having diverse seditious and inflammatory inscriptions, and in martial array, and did, on the said 16th of August, make great tumult, riot, and disturbance, and, for half an hour, unlawfully and riotously, did continue assembled, making great tumult and disturbance, contrary to the peace of our sovereign lord, the king, etc., etc. Each of us pleaded, not guilty, and elected to traverse until the next assizes. The judge proposed naming the amount of our bail in a few days, but after being respectfully urged, with sundry good reasons, for an immediate determination, he mentioned ourselves in two hundred pound, and two sureties, each in a hundred pound as the amount of recognisance which would be required on behalf of us who were in custody we were then reconducted to our old quarters and our fellow defendants on bail departed into the town with their friends on tuesday the 17th of september we were again brought up to put in bail hunt knight johnson and moorhouse were each bound in four hundred pound and two sureties in two hundred pound each; and the conditions were that we should severally appear on the first day of next session of Oyer and Terminer to answer the indictment which had been read. All the required forms having now been complied with Sir Charles Wolsey and Mister Chapman becoming my sureties we were discharged from custody, and after some show off by Mister Hunt, without which, indeed, he scarcely knew how to get out of any matter, we left the dock, and went with our friends to an inn in the town, where we took a frugal repast, and remained for the night. The trial began at York on the 16th of March, 1820, well away from industrial Manchester. Nevertheless, around 120 supporters accompanied Bamford on the 70-mile walk across the Pennines. Our long expected trial, which had excited a strong interest in the public mind, commenced on the morning of Thursday, the sixteenth day of March, eighteen twenty, before Mr. Justice Bailey and a special jury. At an early hour, the court was beset by persons waiting for admission. At a little before seven o'clock, the reporters for the London and Provincial Press were admitted, and soon after, several individuals. Principally solicitors, and others connected with provincial newspapers, were admitted into the gallery. A number of ladies also took possession of a box at the corner of the court on the right hand of the bench. At eight o'clock, a more general admission of the public took place, and the front seats in the two galleries were instantly occupied. A vast number of persons immediately followed, till not one inch of either gallery was left unoccupied. The box which the day before was reserved for the attorneys was, on this occasion, appropriated for the reception of magistrates, except the front seats, which had become occupied by some London reporters. In the Russian confusion, however, many had invaded the place who had no claim to seats there. These were forthwith informed by the officers of the court that they must retire. The mandate was reluctantly obeyed by some, but others obstinately retained their seats until they were finally removed by order of the magistrates when they arrived. The number of witnesses put down for the prosecution exceeded 80. For the defence, 120. At a quarter before nine, Hunt, Morehouse, Saxton, Jones, Wilde and Healy went into the court. Soon afterwards, I and Swift went up and applied for entrance at the common door of the court. We were informed by the keeper that no more could be admitted, the place being quite full. We smiled at this and said we must be admitted, and desired him to open the door. He stoutly refused, and we enjoyed the joke some time, and at last told him who we were, and that we should be wanted, and must take part in the trial. The man then admitted us, but almost as a favour and we made our way up an avenue towards the witness-box. Hunt saw us coming, and beckoned us to step over the backs of the seats, which we did, and I was presently by his side. At nine o'clock, Justice Bailey took his seat on the bench, and immediately the cause of the King against Henry Hunt, Joseph Johnson, John Knight, James Morehouse, Joseph Healy, John Thacker Saxton, Robert Jones, Samuel Bamford, George Swift, and Robert Wilde, was called on. The names of the persons summoned to act as special jurors were then read. At this time the court was most excessively crowded. All the bottom seats and avenues, as well as every inch of standing ground, a passage for the witnesses excepted, were closely occupied. In each of the galleries the people were packed like bees in a hive, and there was ground for apprehension, that the fronts might be forced out. It was some time before order could be obtained, so eager were persons of all ranks to witness the commencement of this trial. The jury-box had been partly filled by strangers and had to be cleared, and several common jurymen, who happened to be in it, made a remonstrance to the judge on the hardship of being turned, not only out of that box, but also out of the one which had always been assigned to the waiting jurymen. This circumstance was occasioned by the arrangements which the High Sheriff, Henry Vansittart, Esquire, and his subordinate officers had made for the accommodation of the public. The box usually assigned to the magistrates of the county was this day opened for the reception of the Manchester and Cheshire magistrates. The one usually reserved for attorneys was given up to reporters for the public press, and the attorneys, being deprived of their usual place in court, went into the jury-box, and filled it so entirely as to occasion the remonstrance just mentioned. Justice Bailey said that he did not understand the arrangements of the court. The place was now full. If, however, there was any situation to which the waiting juryman had a right, he would order it to be cleared, and kept for their accommodation. The box was accordingly cleared. The jury having been sworn, Mr. Littledale opened the proceedings, and the indictment was read, the substance of which, having been already given, I shall not now repeat. We, of course, all pleaded not guilty, except John Knight, who, since being bailed out of Lancaster Castle, had again been committed on a subsequent charge for attending a meeting near Burnley. Mr. Scarlet, Mr. Sergeant Hullock, Mr. Sergeant Cross and Mr. Littledale conducted the prosecution, Mr. Holt was retained for Saxton, and Mr. Barrow for Morehouse and Jones. Hunt, Johnson, Wild, Swift, Healy and myself conducted our several defences, and for that purpose we took our places at the barrister's table. Some conversation ensued respecting this arrangement, and Mr. Hunt expressed his willingness to agree to any other but the judge decided that every individual conducting his own defence should sit there. The others must take seats behind their counsel. Mr. Hunt said he had not been previously aware of the arrangements for the court, and he had therefore invited his co-defendants to the situations they occupied. Room, however, would easily be found for them behind the bar, as he intended to move that all witnesses on both sides, and he knew many were in court, should be ordered out of it. Justice Bailey accordingly ordered all the witnesses to withdraw from the court. Mr. Barrow added, and out of hearing also. The order was immediately complied with, and amongst those who retired, were the Reverend W.R. Hay, the Reverend C.W. Ethelston, Mr. Holton, Mr. Sylvester, Mr. R. Wright, and several other of the Manchester magistrates, together with a number of gentlemen and tradesmen who had been subpoenaed as witnesses. The defendants who had retained counsel also took their places behind them on the seats, usually allotted to the attorneys, and the very inconvenient pressure in the court was considerably mitigated. Immediately under the judge, at the straight edge of the table, which was a half round, sat the counsel for the prosecution already named with their attorneys. On the judge's left, and occupying the curved edge of the table, were George Swift, Mr. Harmer of London, who kindly suggested various matters to us, next myself, then Mr. Hunt, Mr. Pearson, Mr. Wilde, Mr. Barrow, Mr. Holt, Mr. Healy, and Mr. Johnson, the two latter, sitting near the witness-box, and almost directly in front of the judge. The further side of the table was occupied by attorneys and others. A number of elegantly dressed females were upon the right and left of the judge, and occupying seats below, and standing on the floor. The large box behind us, at first assigned to magistrates, and which had been almost filled by those of Lancashire and Cheshire, who vacated it on the order being given for witnesses to retire, was now filled with a crowd of ladies and gentlemen, chiefly, as we understood, residents in the county. Many ladies had obtained seats in the body of the hall, and one was observed taking the likeness of the venerable judge, as he sat in his robes. The learned counsel then indicated the line of accusation he should take against Mr. Hunt especially. He commenced with the Spitalfields meeting at London in the June previous, setting forth the resolutions, and describing them as illegal. Mr. Hunt was next traced to Bullock Smithy. The name of the place has been changed to Hazel Grove. Thence to Manchester, connecting him with the proposed meeting on the ninth of August. Then he described the drillings at White Moss, and the beating of Murray and his companions. He showed Mr. Hunt to have been stopping at the house of Johnson at Smedley, where he said he received the visits of Knight, and others of the defendants. Next he represented the people as marching from all parts on the morning of the 16th of August. They were, he said, provided with banners and inscriptions, and they marched upon Manchester with all the regularity of an army. From Rochdale, from Middleton, from Oldham, from Lees, from Stockport, and many other places, parties might be seen marching towards Manchester. At Middleton, Mr Bamford was seen placing in marching order a body of two thousand men. They were without uniforms, but he displayed sufficient talent to put them through their evolutions. He addressed them, and gave to each of them a laurel leaf, that they might distinguish one another. The town of Manchester was, in fact, surrounded by an immense force, who seemed as if they were going to invade it. Every road which approached the town was covered with parties, marching in military manner, and amongst those who were marching to the town, some of the individuals who were seen training at White Moss were recognised. At eleven o'clock, Mr. Hunt and his party were preparing to enter the town from the residence of Johnson. Mr. Hunt was attended by a triumphant band. The Middleton and Rochdale force had united. They became his guards, and thus surrounded, he entered the town of Manchester. Next he commented on our banners, and some of his strictures may show the difference betwixt the interpretation of the laws in those days, and the present. I will give a short extract of that part of his address. On some of the flags they would find the words, equal representation or death, what could be the object of a sentiment such as this? He would ask the jury to lay their hands on their hearts and say, what good object could those have in view, who exhibited a flag bearing such a motto? They were not met there to discuss whether the present state of the House of Commons was the best that could be imagined, Good and wise men differed on that point, but whatever difference of opinion might be entertained on the subject, of this he was sure, that there was no man who considered the question rightly, that would not stand by the law and the constitution of the country, as they were now administered, and if threatened with violence, that would not resist to the uttermost an attempt to make a forcible alteration of the system. Another banner bore the inscription, No Corn Laws, He came not before them to discuss whether the law on the subject of corn was good or otherwise. He had his opinions on that question, but it would not be decorous or proper to state them there. He knew that wise men might sometimes frame a mischievous law, but it was not to be removed by riot and violence. Would it not be a most dangerous thing to say to a mob of sixty thousand persons, for the purpose of getting rid of such a measure? particularly when the minds of the people were irritated and inflamed, would it not, he asked, be an appeal of a most inflammatory nature, to say to them, we will have no corn laws, we will force the legislature to do as we please. Next came the inscription, Annual Parliaments. There were no doubt respectable and honourable men in the kingdom who thought annual parliaments would be very useful. But would any of those individuals say that such a proposition was to be carried by violence as the sine qua non of their existence? Let the people meet to petition for reform, let them submit to Parliament what they think expedient for the public good, and no man can complain, but was it the business of a public meeting, to dictate to Parliament, and to declare that it would effect a certain object, or would have nothing? The next inscription was, Universal suffrage and election by ballot. These two points were the pretext for calling this assembly. He felt considerable surprise that Mr. Hunt did not perceive that those three terms taken together meant nothing but the subversion of the Constitution, but as long as these questions were sub judice, what right had any man to say? We will, in spite of all opposition, have these three things. To do so was illegal and it was most unfit that, on the subject of public grievances, the mob should be suffered to dictate to the legislature. Let them meet and petition, let the weavers and shoemakers and other artisans in this kingdom, who are destined to earn their bread by the labour of their hands, inform the legislature of the best course to be pursued, with respect to public affairs, if they have more wisdom than those by whom such affairs were conducted. The law enabled them to do this but let not demagogues state to them that these three points were the only things which could be of service to them." Another inscription was "Let us die like men and not be sold like slaves." Who, he should like to know, had been selling the people of Oldham, of Rochdale, of Middleton and of the other places the inhabitants of which went to Manchester on that day? He never heard of any such sale; but some persons who did not, perhaps, choose to speak those words, thought fit to place them on a banner. Such were some of the constructions which the learned council attached to some of our banners and their inscriptions, constructions which, if followed in these days, would place some of the chartist exhibitors in a rather perilous position. Witnesses were now called, who traced Mr. Hunt through Bullock Smithy, Stockport, Heaton Norris, and from Manchester to Johnson's at Smedley. On the examination of a witness named John Chadwick, who swore that he saw Murray at the White Moss on the morning of the 15th, Mr. Hunt objected to his evidence, because he had said he did not know anyone who was there by name. Mr. Scarlet said he wished to show that some of the White Moss drillers had attended Mr. Hunt. Mr. Hunt said it mattered not, unless some of those persons were among the accused. Mr. Scarlet hoped Mr. Hunt would not be allowed to disturb the proceedings of the court. Mr. Justice Bailey, Mr. Hunt has a right to take the objection, and I am doubting whether this is evidence. The witness was here sent out of court. Mr. Scarlet said he was about to show that some of these persons who were training, and who assaulted Murray, had attended the meeting of the 16th, and had also cheered opposite Murray's house he would show that Mr. Hunt and his party had done the same. This, he conceived, was perfectly regular. Mr. Justice Bailey, when you have shown that any of the persons of the White Moss party were at the meeting on the 16th, then it will be evidence, but I think you had better prove that first. The witness was again called in and examined, and said that the first person he saw at the meeting on the 16th was a man whom he had seen at the White Moss, with a letter brought from Manchester. A person arrived at White Moss after the witness had seen Murray. The parties then formed into a square like four walls, and the man who was to read the letter was in the centre. The letter was not read, as they said there was no name to it, and they would have nothing to do with it. The man then joined them. The man who was to have read this letter was the man who led up the Middleton and Rochdale parties on Monday, This man was drilling the men, and giving the word of command. Such was the first link of the evidence which, by inference, connected me with the white moss affair. Why that link was not broken will hereafter appear. For the present, Mr. Pearson advised me to sit still, and not cross-examine the witness. He would be sure, he said, to swear I was the man he saw at the moss. He would swear right ahead, no doubt. It was for the witness to point me out, and not for me to offer myself to his notice. I accordingly kept my seat. This was the only evidence tendered on the first day of the trial, which applied to me. On the morning of the second day, the court was crowded soon after seven o'clock. The rush when the doors were open was excessive, and a number of ladies again encountered the pressure of the crowd. They were soon, however, accommodated with such places as could be spared near the bench, and in the magistrate's large box on the left. The defendants were assisted by Mr. Harmer and Mr. Pearson, as on the previous day. Mr. Justice Bailey took his seat at half-past nine. Many persons of rank in the county were present during the day. William Morris, the first witness, examined by Sergeant Cross, said, "'I am a weaver.' residing five miles from Manchester. In the month of August last I saw many groups of people near Middleton. Samuel Bamford used to be among them. Early on the morning of the sixteenth of August I saw many hundreds of people put into regular form at Middleton with two flags and twenty-five men were in each section. I know not who formed them into sections but there certainly was a large number collected-two or three thousand at least. They marched off four abreast, after being first drawn into the form of a square, in the inside of which was placed a chair, on which Bamford stood and said, "'Friends and neighbours, I have a few words to relate. You will march off this place quietly, and not insult anyone, but rather take an insult. I do not think there will be any disturbance or anything to do. If there is, it will be after we come back. There is no fear. The day is our own.' He got off the chair, and distributed laurel among the men who were to command the sections. They put it, some in their breasts and some in their hats. Before they went away, a large number of people came arranged in form from Rochdale, with a band of music before them, and bearing two flags. Both bodies joined and went off together, each with a cap of liberty. The men had nothing in their hands but bits of switches or small sticks. Before that day I saw the Middleton people, forming and arranging, both in fields and high roads. Bamford was with them at different times. John Whitworth, who had been a private in the 6th Regiment of Foot, was drilling the men, but not on the 16th of August. John Haywood, who had been a private in the 6th Dragoons, had also done the same. In his cross-examination by me, the witness said, I heard you recommend them to be peaceable, and understood you wished them to continue so during the whole day. Many thousands went with the Middleton and Rochdale people, who were not formed with them, as well as a good deal of women and children. I think it was about three o'clock in the afternoon, when Michael Fitzpatrick, a reporter for the New Times, and the last witness for the prosecution, made his exit from the witness box. Mr. Barrow and Mr. Holt then addressed the court on behalf of their several clients, and Mr. Hunt made application to the judge, that I should next be heard, and the other defendants after me, in order that, as an indulgence, his address might be deferred until the following morning. Mr. Scarlet, I think, observed that such a course would be irregular, but he did not strongly object to it, and the favour was granted. I accordingly address the court in the following terms. My lord and gentlemen of the jury, before I enter into a detail of the evidence which I intend to produce in my defence, I think it necessary to notice some expressions made use of by the learned counsel for the prosecution in the speech which he addressed to the court on the opening of these proceedings. I allude to that part of his address where he said that, Bamford was seen training a body of ten thousand men on the morning of the sixteenth. If the brief which the learned gentleman had before him instructed him to make such an assertion, so much the better, and I sincerely wish, for his own honour, that it may be so. Mr. Scarlet intimated across the table that such were his instructions. But your lordship and the jury cannot have failed to observe that the testimony of Morris contains no such proof and he alone has appeared against me, with respect to the transactions that took place at Middleton, previous to our movement towards Manchester. Indeed, Morris states that he knew not who formed the people intersection, division, and square, that they were so formed, and by whom he does not undertake to say. The learned gentleman also, in commenting upon some of the banners and their inscriptions, described one as bearing the words, annual parliaments, and universal suffrage, and insinuated that such were put forth as a demand, whence he inferred a design to subvert the constitution and government. Now the mottos on the banner, so erroneously described, were nothing more than an avowal of what we considered, and do still consider, as our political right. There was no such thing as a demand about it, why should we demand that which we were going to Manchester to petition for? With respect to drilling, I have, in common with my neighbours, heard much, seen some, and could have seen more, for it was, to use a common, though very memorable, phrase, as notorious as the sun at noonday. If it will not be trespassing too much on the time of the court, I will endeavour to give a brief account of its origin and intention, In the course of the last six years, Manchester has witnessed many public meetings, to all of which, with the exception of the last, great numbers of people from the surrounding towns and villages proceeded in groups, and on these occasions they were uniformly styled by the liberal and venal press of the place, mobs, riotous, tumultuous, and disorderly mobs. They were ridiculed as illiterate, dirty and mean, having chapped hands and greasy nightcaps, they were scandalized as being drunken and disorderly, as being libellous and seditious, dividers of property, and destroyers of social order-and was it not then very natural that these poor insulted and vilified people should wish to rescue themselves from the unmerited imputations which were wantonly cast on their character, It certainly was natural that they should wish to give the lie to their enemies, and thereby show to the nation and to the world, that they were not what they had been represented to be. They determined to give one example of peace and good order, such as should defy the most bitter of their enemies to criminate. And for this purpose and this alone was the drilling, so styled, instituted. Only one witness for the prosecution has sworn to having heard, amongst the drillers, the word fire. All the others swear only to their facing, and to their marching in file and in line, which evolutions were certainly most suited to familiarise them with that uniformity of motion which would be necessary for the preservation of due order and decorum in their progress to the place of meeting. But as to these facts, I do not tender to your Lordship and the jury my own assertion only. I refer you to the papers laid before the House of Commons, relative to the internal state of the country. The particular document to which I refer in those papers is dated the 5th of August, only four days previous to the first proposed meeting at Manchester, which should have been on the ninth. So that if we suppose the drilling parties to have been in existence, a week or a fortnight before the day on which the letter referred to is dated, the ground of my argument is strengthened. That military gentleman who did us the honour to stand so long before us on Saturday evening, and whose services I trow, consisted in marching with Colonel Fletcher from Bolton to Manchester, and from Manchester to Bolton, talks of midnight drillings, and of parties coming to the meeting in beautiful order, The former representation is not, I presume, legal evidence, and of course will not appear on your Lordship's notes. The latter confirms what I have said, respecting the wish of the people to preserve the strictest decorum. Your Lordship and the jury will find by the evidence which I shall produce, that by nine o'clock on the morning of the ever-memorable 16th of August, numbers of persons assembled at Middleton that they were formed into a hollow square, and that whilst so formed I addressed them, earnestly cautioning them to be on their guard against enemies, and representing the advantage which might be taken of their numbers to create a riot by persons who might be employed for that sole purpose, that I advised them not to insult any person, but rather suffer an insult on that day, as their opponents would be glad of a pretext to accuse them of riot and disorder that I entreated them to bear towards everyone a spirit of good-will, in token of which I distributed amongst them branches of laurel, emblems of purity and peace, as described by Morrison Heaton. And having heard that if I went to the meeting, the police of Manchester would, on its own responsibility, arrest me, I cautioned the people against offering any resistance, if such an attempt should be made as I preferred an appeal to the laws of my country, rather than to force, that I insisted no stick should be taken, and that in consequence several were left by the way, that we went in the greatest hilarity and good humour, preceded by a band of music, which played loyal and national airs, and that our fathers, our mothers, our wives, our children, and our sweethearts were with us and this was the dreadful military array which the learned council described as one vast army, bearing from all parts to the invasion of Manchester. Poor, forlorn, defenceless Manchester! These were the soldiers ready to fight for Mr. Hunt, with bare heads and with arms locked, a fighting posture forsooth, who terrified that immortal author of green books, Mr. Francis Phillips, and of such persons, Oh! dreadful to relate, was formed that cordon impenetrable to everything save the newly ground sabres of the Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry. At quarter past twelve the learned judge closed his charge and the jury retired. Shortly before five they returned into court and the foreman read their verdict as follows:-Morehouse, Jones, Wiles, Swift, and Saxton, not guilty. Henry Hunt, Joseph Johnson, John Knight, Joseph Healy, and (to the astonishment of the judge, the bar, and the audience,) Samuel Bamford guilty of assembling with unlawful banners an unlawful assembly for the purpose of moving and inciting the liege subjects of our sovereign lord the King to contempt and hatred of the government and constitution of the realm as by law established and attending at the same. Mr. Justice Bailey, do you mean that they themselves intended to incite? The foreman, yes. Mr. Justice Bailey, let the verdict be so recorded. You find, gentlemen, on such counts as the words of your verdict are applicable to, do you find that they created terror or incited it in the liege subjects of the King? The foreman, we mean, my lord, to find on the first count, omitting a few words. The learned judge then requested that they would retire and look over the counts of the indictment again and say to which count they meant to apply their verdict. The jury withdrew and in a few minutes returned with a verdict of guilty generally on the fourth count and not guilty on the remaining counts. Mr. Justice Bailey, I take it for granted the defendants are still under recognizance. Mr. Hunt, we are, my lord mr Justice Bailey, "Then let them now additionally in court enter into their own recognizances to keep the peace and be of good behaviour for six months, mr Hunt in the sum of two thousand pounds, mr Johnson in one thousand, and Bamford and Healy in five hundred each." The parties immediately gave their several recognizances; his lordship addressing the jury, said they had his best thanks for the patient attention they had bestowed on this arduous trial, he was very much obliged to them. Then, facing the body of the court, his lordship added, I very much approve of the conduct of the court at the time the verdict was given in, alluding, as was understood, to the universal silence which prevailed at the time. The reader will perhaps not think that I speak too strongly, when I say that the infamy of the verdict against myself has seldom been surpassed. During the whole of the ten days' investigation, I did not observe that any one of the jury took a single note of the evidence, or that they indicated by the action of a single muscle of countenance that any impression was made on their minds. They sat motionless, and like men who were asleep with their eyes open, and it was clear from the bungling form in which they presented their first verdict that they had agreed upon it from a vague recollection of some point in evidence, and a clumsy misapplication of the counts in the indictment. In a short time after we had left the court, I was somewhat surprised by the information that Hunt, Pearson and Bryant were about to leave York that night. I therefore hastened to Mr. Pearson, and represented to him that I had not any money whatever to pay my lodging and tavern bills, every farthing I had having been given up to Mr. Chapman. Mr. Pearson advanced me two pounds, and I went and discharged what I owed. The next morning, the generous-hearted Morehouse yoked up his coach and dragged a full load of witnesses and defendants to Huddersfield, where we stopped for the night. The following morning, Wednesday, Morehouse found that, In consequence of the heavy load, he should want a pair of leaders to help him over the hills, and he applied at several places, but in vain. No horse-keeper in Huddersfield would furnish us a pair for love or money, and the radicals of the place, indignant at the paltry annoyance, harnessed themselves to the vehicle, and drew it over the steep hills, as far as Blackmore Bottom. At Oldham, our faithful and kind friends. Alas, that so few of them remain met us and conducted us to a good, substantial dinner at the White Horse Inn. Here I was met by my dear wife and child, and our present joy was only saddened by the reflection that ere long there must be another parting. We were soon again in tender conversation by the hedgerows and green fields, and I arrived at Middleton, poor in gear, but rich in the satisfaction of having performed my duty well, in having, though condemned, largely contributed towards the vindication of the conduct of the reformers on the 16th of August, in having created a feeling of respect in my enemies and a favourable impression in the upright judge who tried us, in having disclosed to a great assemblage of wealth and aristocracy, as well as to the nation at large, that somewhat of moral and intellectual respectability, had been attained by the artisans of Lancashire, whom on this occasion I represented. From that time they had advanced a step in the grade of society, they were contemplated with a mingled feeling of curiosity and deference, and they were no longer considered as the swinish multitude, the base on washed helots, nor denounced as the dividers of property and destroyers of social order. On the 15th of May, 1820, those found guilty at York were sentenced in London after an unsuccessful appeal. Henry Hunt was sentenced to two years and six months' imprisonment and sent to Ilchester Jail. Samuel Bamford, Joseph Healy and Joseph Johnson were sentenced to one year's imprisonment and sent to Lincoln Jail. John Knight served two years in prison on a subsequent charge related to a meeting in Burnley in November 1819. We finish this account of the trial with an extract from Samuel Bamford's final plea to the judge, which was recorded in the transcript of the appeal. My Lords, if I have been rightly informed, the principal part of the charge against me is the motto contained in the blue flag, Unity and Strength. I am certainly at a loss to know how this motto could contain a criminal meaning. I am at a loss what degree of criminality is attached to that, or how that criminality is continued. Since I have been in London, I have heard much boasting occasionally of the liberty of Englishmen. Now I conceive that liberty cannot exist without there be a proportionate degree of strength with which to secure that liberty when attained, and I also contend that strength cannot exist without unity Therefore, in that view of the question, the motto, Unity and Strength, certainly did not convey any idea of a seditious nature, or of a turbulent disposition. It merely went to express the feelings which we all, as Englishmen, are proud to boast, the liberty of our country. All our hopes are founded upon that liberty. The foundation of strength is laid in unity. But if we peruse the evidence brought against me, we shall perhaps there find an explanation of that maxim. Morris says that I made use of the following expressions in addressing the multitude in Barrow fields previous to going to Manchester. Friends and neighbours, I have a few words to relate. You will march off this place quietly, not to insult anyone, but rather to take an insult. I do not think there will be any disturbance or anything to do. If there is, it will be after we come back. All I wish to observe upon that, is that I certainly did make use of some of the words which Morris had imputed to me, namely, that they would rather take an insult than offer one. But I feel it is but just to state to your Lordships, that such are my feelings arising from what I witnessed on that day. Such are my feelings, I will never recommend such conduct again, until justice is obtained, for such unprovoked massacre that took place on that day before my eyes. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys. With Henry Hunt, we'll go. We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.